Thank you, Scott, for your introduction. Uh, good evening, everyone. It's nice to be able to uh, bring a message to you tonight, but I'm sure you're wondering, why did they ever ask someone who's retired to speak about hard work? Well, in my own defense, I suppose I, I would describe my position as partial retirement. I did retire from the health service some uh, six years ago, uh, but I hope I've kept myself out of mischief and reasonably active uh, since then. Could you turn uh, to God's Word, please? Proverbs chapter 6, and we're going to read the first uh, 19 verses. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 6, starting at verse 1. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you have struck hands and pledged for another, if you've been trapped by what you said, ensnared by the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, to free yourself since you have fallen into your neighbor's hands. Go and humble yourself. Press your plea with your neighbor. Allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the snare of the fowler. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler. Yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. A scoundrel and a villain who goes about with a corrupt mouth who winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, and motions with his fingers, who plots evil and deceit in his heart. He always stirs up dissension. Therefore, disaster will overtake him in an instant. He will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. As Scott has said, this is the second in a series on the book of Proverbs, and the book sits as one in the middle of the Old Testament. On one side, you've got Psalm, Job and Psalms. On the other side, of Proverbs, you've got Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes and Songs of Solomon. And these five books address some of the biggest questions about life. The book of Job asks, why do we suffer? Psalms asks, how do I worship and engage with God? Ecclesiastes asks, why do I feel the way I do? Why am I always depressed? And the Songs of Solomon seek answers about human relationships. And in the middle of these four books sits Proverbs. And if I was to try to capture its purpose in a single sentence, it would be, how do I live my life wisely? As you heard last week, uh, the book of Proverbs was mainly written by King Solomon. And he is associated with wisdom. In the book of Second Chronicles, we read that God spoke to Solomon and said, ask me for whatever you want. And Solomon replied, he didn't reply, well, I would like power and mighty armies and lots of wealth, but Solomon said, uh, give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead your people. 
And God rewarded Solomon, not just with wisdom, but with might and power and wealth. And he was famed for his wisdom and knowledge, some of which is recorded in the book of Proverbs. His reign brought about peace and economic prosperity and international influence far beyond what one would expect of a tiny kingdom surrounded by hostile nations. In his wisdom, he made deals or used diplomacy with the countries around him to create space for that prosperity to grow. I think it's useful when we are reading Proverbs to remember that it's a book about principles by which we live our lives. It's not a book of promises. And these principles will apply most of the time and in most situations. I'm speaking personally when I say I think we should distinguish them from the law that Moses, uh, God gave to Moses. Uh, these uh, proverbs that we are going to look at tonight are guidance from the God who created our universe to the human race as to how we should live our lives. In a sense, it's a very practical book, book an operating guide from the Creator. The chapter we're looking at tonight starts, deals with some very practical issues. The first one is about standing surety. I'll not dwell on it, but I think it's interesting. It's very practical. It deals with the dangers of standing surety or guarantor for people you don't know. I remember when one of my offspring was at university, and I won't say which one, but it, it was him. <laughs> and in the second year, he decided to get a flat, you know, get out those halls of residence to get a flat. And as a parent, you understand you've got to stand guarantor for a sibling in that particular situation. But when the phone call came through, it said, uh, Dad, um, could you stand uh, guarantor for everybody getting into the flat? Well, that started to make me really doubt. And in the end, he did persuade me the only way to get that flat was me to do that. But I didn't repeat it in his third year, I can tell you. <laughs> the second area... Uh, that we talk about in this piece we've read is about the value of work. I'll come back to that. The third uh, area is a warning against sexual infidelity. But our subject this evening is hard work in society. And the writer leaves us no doubt about the importance of work in our lives and the dangers of avoiding work. The focus of the verses we read is on those who avoid work. They are referred to as sluggards. I went to the dictionary and eventually find a definition as a lazy, sluggish person, inert, inactive, slow-moving, and torpid. So what do we mean by work? Let's see if we can get a definition of that before we start describing it. And again, another useful definition was the application of mental or physical energy for the purpose of one's employment or occupation. And when we talk about work, it's really important we acknowledge that work isn't just about paid employment. It encompasses an army of unpaid, unpaid carers, those who raise families, those who care for those with illness or old age infirmities. And we must also recognize that there are many who just love to work, to earn a living, but who cannot do so because of ill health or disability. Others have lost their jobs through redundancy. I remember so well every moment when my boss came through my door, office door and handed me my P45. Redundancy is a shattering thing, but there is life after redundancy. I hope I'm proof of that. So not everyone 
who wants to work can work. Let's put that out front. So what about the theology of work? What does the Bible say about work? What is the Christian uh, worldview of work? We can see from the outset of the process of creation, as recorded in Genesis chapter 1, that God worked to bring about creation. And after each time period, He stepped back and admired His handiwork. Genesis 1 says, and God saw it, and it was good. And it also records that on the seventh day, God rested from His work. When God created man, He took him and placed him in the Garden of Eden. And the purpose of placing him there was to work and take care of it. God gave Adam the physical task of caring for the garden and the intellectual task of naming the various species in this wonderful creation. And we can see from this account in Genesis that God Himself ordained work as a dignified activity for mankind, womankind, to do. We therefore approach the subject of work from the perspective that it was central to God's purpose for mankind. Work plays an important role in us um, living as God intended us to live. God also in Genesis gave the pattern of work. He created the world in six days, and we can debate what a day means in, in terms of time uh, in the description of creation. And on the seventh, He rested. And I'm sure that uh, we're fortunate in our society, we don't have to work five, six days a week. Most of us are working uh, five. Uh, and uh, thankfully, you know, there's time off to do things, to relax, to enjoy, uh, to be entertained, to do our shopping, our washing, cleaning the house, playing golf, gardening, all of those things that are important. And that seventh day of rest is vital to us because the need for physiological and psychological rest in the form of sleep, for instance, is built into human nature. But so also is the need to abstain from our normal work for a period during the week, at least one day. And as Christians, we use that seventh day for worship and fellowship. It's a time for taking our minds off the issue of daily living. Now, let's come to this issue of the sluggard. Solomon had uh, clearly seen his uh, fill of lazy people in and around his palace. He may have been thinking of some of his own family when he wrote this. You know, even royalty have that problem. You think of uh, our own royal family and the wonderful work that Charles and his sister Anne have done and even his youngest brother. The middle one, however, didn't quite get a great reputation for work, did he? And Solomon may well have been looking at those princes who lived off his wealth and contributed little to the prosperity of the nation. They partied in the palace and brought disrespect to the family. And he addresses them. I have no proof that he was addressing them, but I suggest he was, and tells them to consider the humble ant. Ants don't wait to be told what to do. They have the instinct to gather food to see them through times when it's not available. And they find safe places to store them. An ant can carry up to 50 times its own weight. You sense the, the writer is starting to get angry when he says, how long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little fold, folding of the hands. By the way, is any of this familiar to any of you? A little, uh, a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come on you like a thief, and scarcity like an armed man. Here, Solomon was pointing out the consequences of idleness. 
poverty, overindulgence, timidity, and above all, the failure to achieve our potential. When I read this section, I imagined my own dad trying to rouse me from Saturday morning slumbers when I came back from university. In my defense, it was usually 8 o'clock in the morning and he had a list of chores for me to take on. And in defense of students, some of you who may be here, who find themselves in midday, in bed still by midday, young persons, uh, circadian rhythms may be different from their parents, but it is best to shake off bad habits as early as you can. Elsewhere in uh, Proverbs, idleness is, is tackled. Uh, so in chapter 10, we have, as vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so are sluggards to those who send them. It affects every aspect of their lives. Uh, chapter 14 says, a sluggard's appetite is never filled, but the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. Perhaps a reference to gluttony. Chapter 15 says, the way of the sluggard is blocked by thorns, but the path of the righteous is a highway. Again, the sluggard never really achieves their full potential. And in chapter 19, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I'll be killed in the public square. A reference perhaps to timidity, never seizing opportunities that arise. And when we come to the New Testament, we also see that it extols the virtues of hard work. Colossians, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Again, a reminder that work is ordained by God and we serve God through our work. Winston Churchill is quoted as saying that continuous effort, not strength or intelligence, is the key to unlocking our potential. What about society's view of work? In the last hundred years, there's been a revolution in how workers are treated. In Western Europe uh, and most um, developed countries, laws have been passed to protect the welfare of workers, health and safety, equality, minimum wage, maximum working hour regulations, and so on. But it's interesting, if you go back 150 years or more, you'll see that the role of the worker and, and the angst which they had to go through as part of the Industrial Revolution brought about another revolution. Karl Marx was regarded as the founding father of communism. He built his uh, political philosophy around, it, around what he regarded as the exploitation of workers by capitalism. He saw work as a natural and desirable function of human beings. Uh, through work, they could find development and fulfillment. He also believed that society could never be free until all religion had been abolished. And the Marxian view, which resulted in communism, of course, has collapsed. It was based on a rotten, corrupt system that denied its citizens freedom and concentrated power in the hands of a few privileged few. So we see that uh, the, the idea of work and the worker has dominated much of political uh, thought in the 19th and 20th century. When I was at university in Queens uh, studying political science in the 1970s, uh, it was still not sure whether capitalism or communism would uh, 
triumph. It was touch and go. But now we come to the present day, and I want to just pause for a moment and ask, what about the Christian's experience in the workplace? Most of us will spend more time working than any other activity, more time than we spend with our family or friends, more time than in leisure or even sleeping, unless you're a sluggard who lies in at 12 in the morning. It is so important that we find a measure of contentment in our work given how much of our time we spend in that work environment. I spent uh, half of my working life uh, in the human resources function, or as someone unkindly called it, the Department of Human Remains. It gave me an opportunity to observe the whole spectrum of human behavior. The people I felt sorriest for were those who disliked or even hated their work. I often felt like saying to them, try to find something that would, bring, that would bring out contentment or even enjoyment. Sometimes I, I gave that counsel. The truth was that it would not only help them, but would give those who worked with them a break from a constant stream of negativity. I once saw a quotation by a guy called Charles Lamb who said, I always arrive late in the office, but I make up for it by leaving early. We all know, we've all seen, we've all worked with people like that, and, and it can be a very negative impact on those around them. The workplace can be a very challenging place for Christians today. The promotion in the workplace of lifestyles that run counter to the teaching of Scripture is a big challenge. And if you, as a Christian, give a biblical response to those lifestyle issues, you may be vilified or disciplined. Society has turned its back on what God has taught the right way to live, and sometimes even looks on Christians as though they were a member of a, members of a strange cult. So how do I witness in the workplace? How do I show and share my Christianity? Because we are called to be salt and we are called to be light. It's not an option to simply stick your head down and... Um, because in a sense that could be almost portrayed as a denial of Christ. But living the Christian uh, uh, life in the workplace is challenging. How do I witness? Well, Rico Tice, who's the author of Christianity Explored, his work is familiar to many of you, says we should start each day with an expectation that God has planned it for us. He writes, Today is a great day because today is a day God has planned for me, and if it's good for God, it's good for me. This is important because it's very difficult not to uh, be foolhardy uh, in trying to directly evangelize people in the workplace without their consent. Uh, perhaps when I was uh, starting work, people understood what it meant if you said, I'm saved, they would have understood that language nowadays. They, they, they will look at you, they won't, they won't understand. So how can, you, um, how can you bring about a position where A, people know that you're a Christian, and B, hear from you at the appropriate moment the good news of Jesus Christ? I think Rigo Tice is saying that uh, we need to depend on God's to make us sensitive to opportunities to share the good news of Jesus. It's important, as I've said, to let people be aware of your Christian faith. And how do you do that without preaching at them? Well, I've found that one really useful way was, was to mention 
church. So people say to you, well, what did you do at the weekend? Well, I heard a really interesting talk at church on Sunday. And, and that, in a sense, it's the start of sharing your faith. There may be other ways that you've tried equally successfully. So by saying that, identifying yourself with Christianity, people then will, of course, see you a little differently. That will bring close scrutiny and judgment on everything you do in the workplace. People judge you by what you do, not what you say. And it follows, therefore, that your behaviors must stand up to scrutiny. Performing your duties fully and honestly are top of the list. I suppose working hard, the, the topic uh, of tonight. But it may also mean speaking out when you see injustice or dishonesty. It won't necessarily make you popular. It might even cost you your job. But be on the lookout for opportunities to share your faith. But remember that actions speak louder than words in the workplace. I chose to read uh, at verse 16 tonight, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to Him. And in a way, these are all behaviors which uh, are not that uncommon in the workplace. Haughty eyes, I suppose that speaks of, of pride. The second is a lying tongue. It's so easy to distort the truth without thinking you're telling a lie. Hands that shed innocent blood, well, Thankfully, that's a very rare thing in our society. But nonetheless, uh, assassinate, character assassination is a classic thing that goes on in the workplace. A heart that devises wicked schemes and feet that are quick to rush into evil. You know, when you're at work, there are all those opportunities to be negative about colleagues, to be negative about your work, to be negative about your bosses. But I think God is asking us to refrain from that, to try to show positivity and commitment and enthusiasm even uh, for our work. It's equally important, I think, to say that we mustn't let work become an idol in our lives. With the focus tonight on avoiding laziness, it would be easy to overlook behavior at the other end of the spectrum. Work can take over our lives becoming an all-consuming idol that takes precedent even over God. We bring home piles of work. We get to work early and come home late. This is why I kind of hope my wife wouldn't be here tonight, but she is. <laughs> In the meantime, family life is, life is neglected and recreation non-existent. Our church life suffers. We've no time for prayer or personal Bible study. Now, at some point, in your working life, you will no doubt have to exert a huge amount of effort in your work. But the critical thing is that do not let it completely dominate. So if you're coming up to exams, it's perfectly understandable that most things get pushed to the side. I hope not your faith and your relationship with God, but all those other things for a short period, it's perfectly natural. But the critical thing is don't let it become a habit because if you do, it is those relationships that mean most to you that will suffer. There are lots of things I'm not going to be able to have time to talk about tonight, but here's a brilliant little book published uh, this year uh, by Professor John Lennox, a son of Ulster, and it's called A Good Return, Bible Principles for Work, Wealth, and Wisdom. And then he talks about the future of work. People of my generation are 
probably very glad that they are at a stage where they can uh, uh, retire from full-time employment. And there's something like 12 million people who have now reached retirement age and have formally retired. About two to three million of them are back part-time in the workplace. But very interestingly, if you go back to the 1940s, there were 10 people working for every person retired. Now there are three people, less than three people working for every person retired. And that actually brings an important issue for society because how do you create wealth whenever my generation is consuming it, the younger generation is providing it, but in, in smaller and smaller increments compared to those who are retired. And the pandemic has brought about radical changes in the way people work. When I worked at Stormont, uh, as I did for part of my career, I remember having great difficulty in getting a car parking space. Just recently, I've been a regular visitor to the same buildings. Uh, the car parks are more than half empty. And uh, yet I was told in the particular department I was working in that there were more people on its payroll than when I was there. Well, of course, the pandemic has introduced the practice of, of working from home. And for many, uh, that practice has continued as many organizations opt for hybrid working where workers are permitted two or three days a week from home. Whatever you think of the, the practice of home working, it has brought about profound changes in society and changes in which the Christian lifestyle can be shared with others. Zoom is no replacement or or teams or any of these uh, video mechanisms are no um, replacement for creating um, relationships between people. And yet this revolution can be surpassed or will be surpassed by the next big change that we're now just starting to witness with the wide-scale introduction of artificial intelligence. Dr. Stuart Armstrong of the USA Future of Humanity Institute has estimated that up to 47% of all American jobs could be replaced by 2035. That's only 12 years away. Ironically, that's exactly the, and the jobs that will be affected uh, are jobs that many of us hold today. So it's really important as we think ahead, I'm conscious there are many students here, that as you think ahead, that you seek God's will for the direction of your career. When I went into work, uh, it would have been unusual to have changed career more than two or three times. Now, many of you in your first 10 years have, will have changed your career three or four times. That has many impacts. It, 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 there are many good things about that. Uh, but again, as a Christian, it's so important that we seek God's will for our working lives. So we come to a conclusion tonight. Proverbs is not a manual full of solutions for every conceivable problem that any of us will ever meet. It merely gives us principles that can shape our lives in developing our characters, helping us mature and becoming more experienced in tackling life's challenges. The Bible, as we've read, has stark warnings about the consequence of idleness, the consequences being poverty, letting other people down, failing to meet our potential. We spend so much of our lives at work that it's essential that we witness to the saving power of Jesus Christ, not just by words, but on how we conduct ourselves in the workplace. With all this focus on the merits of hard work, it'd be important not to end without 
emphasizing or reminding ourselves that our salvation, <coughs> our personal relationship with Christ, does not depend on how hard we have worked. The good news is that we receive the gift of salvation by trusting in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And salvation, as Paul describes it, is a gift of God that we cannot earn, but have to be received. He says in Ephesians, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us. In Matthew, it's recorded that Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. For what profit is it to a man if he gains a whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I'm going to finish with a, a quote. It's from the world's greatest footballer. Success is no accident. It is hard work, perseverance, learning, studying, sacrifice, and most of all, love of what you are doing or learning to do. Pelly said that. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is so alive and so relevant to our lives. We ask, Lord, that you would give us a love for your word, increase that love so that we depend upon it, not just for those moments of contemplation with you, but as a guide to our daily lives. We pray in the week ahead that as folk think of going back to work on Tuesday, that you will give them courage to witness in whatever way is appropriate for you, to share the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as it shines out from their lives and from their work. Give them that plan for the day, Lord, so that they may know and be aware of commitment to their employment and commitment to you. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that uh, we, our salvation does not depend on works, because then none of us would have that relationship with you. We thank you for the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he took the penalty for our sins, and now he offers us that wonderful salvation. Thank, all the, thank you for all of your blessings to us, and ask uh, for your blessing on everyone here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I was once asked, what's the best thing about retirement? And I said, Sunday nights. <laughs>